My task in, these, in this next hour is to help you to see what God has said to us in the first 12 uh, verses of Proverbs chapter 3. So please read with me and then we will proceed to ponder. These are God's words. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Let's pray. Lord, there are realities behind these words that we are to see and take into our hearts today that they would change the way we see the world and live and act in the world. And so we, we pray that you would open our eyes to these things and that they would not only become things that we hear, but they would come into our hearts and they would reshape the architecture of our souls that we might be different people because we have been shaped by your word. So now do that miraculous work we pray by your spirit in Jesus name. Amen. If you were reading the same translation that I read from the English Standard Version, you'll notice that the publisher put a title at the beginning of this section. The title, that title is not in scripture. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. So you can think that, well, that, that must be what this text is about. But I would like to propose that trust in the Lord is not the heart of this passage. So I'm gonna give you a title and I hope by the time I'm done, you're gonna say, oh, that title makes a lot of sense. The title of this passage that I would give it is Finding Grace. Finding Grace. The goal of the text is in verse four. So, or you could say, as a result, you will find favor with, and good success in the sight of God 
and man. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke notes that the Hebrew word translated favor is much like the New Testament word for grace. Isn't that interesting? Waltke writes, favor cannot be compelled. It is extended voluntarily and unilaterally to preserve a valued relationship. So favor, like the New Testament word for grace, cannot be compelled. If someone has to show you favor, it's not favor. It is extended voluntarily. The person showing favor gives it freely at his own choice. So the goal of this, these 12 verses is that we find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. The goal of this text is to find grace. So the topic today is how do we position ourselves to find favor and good success with God and man? The text uh, and the writer of the text brings it to us in three sections. The first is verses one through four, which I've entitled Finding Grace. This is where he introduces the goal of finding grace. And then the heart of the passage, number two, is practicing grace, verses five through 10. And then finally, verses 11 through 12, correcting grace. So we're finding grace, we're practicing grace, and there is correcting grace. So the passage is crucial. It's, it's actually, this is a very important passage to understand the entire book of Proverbs. Wisdom is not the goal. Wisdom positions you to receive grace. And it's very important you get that, or you could turn this book into a list of rules that you must keep in order to earn the favor of God. Get that? So number one, finding grace, verses one through four. What you'll notice is verse one and three give direction, and verses two and four give the promise that comes out of following that direction. But before we even go there, look at the first two words. My son. My son. The writer speaks in the context of a father-son relationship. This is a father who has an intimate relationship with you. He's intensely interested in your success in life. He takes delight in you. He's known you from the day you were born and you have lived in his household and you know how he lives and acts and thinks. This is not some outside expert. This is not some blogger on the internet telling you how to find wisdom. This is a father who knows you. You have a father who speaks to you today. He knows you better than you know yourself. He has your success. God your Father has your success 
as his goal for your life. God has also given us human fathers in this life. Some of us have or have had the privilege of growing up with a dad who was wise and who loved us. But such a father is not essential to finding grace. The Lord puts his church in his church. He puts wise men and women from whom you can learn and who you can observe. You can observe their day-to-day life and see do they live according to what they say. You cannot find this on the internet. You can't find it in a book. Wisdom is conveyed personally by the Spirit of God through God's people, not simply giving us ideas or lists of things to do, but by taking a personal interest in us and allowing us to engage with them in their daily lives personally. We all need these kind of people in our life. And they have to be people who are physically present with us. Well, let's go to the commands in verses 1 and 3. The command in verse 1 is not to forget the Father's teaching. The Father's teaching. And to keep His commandments in your heart. So the call is to memorize what the Father says, but not just memorize it. We are called to internalize what the Father says so that your practice is not simply copying, not simply a matter of I've got to obey or there'll be bad consequences, but your obedience comes from who you are. In verse 3, the command is not to forget not to let steadfast love and faithfulness read you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. You should be motivated in your dealings by a committed love that comes from your heart. So that's that that, uh, steadfast love. There is a a commitment of love toward God, toward His Word, toward other people that drives you. And the second word, faithfulness, it's a a word related to reliability. You can be counted on. One scholar called it being reliable over the long haul. Your love and reliability should be something everyone can see. So he compares your faithfulness to this beautiful necklace that someone immediately notices when they see you. But the beauty of your actions are not simply superficial. They arise out of a heart that has wisdom inscribed on it. So your wisdom is displayed and everyone can see it, but it comes from this tablet of your heart on which these words of wisdom are written. Well, those are the commands, the promises. The promise in verse 2 is for peace, length of days, years of life, and peace they will add to you. Now, we often think of peace as simply an absence of conflict, but this word reflects this huge, this Hebrew word. It's a a beautiful, huge word like ultimate word for 
anyone who loves God's word, and that word is shalom. Walke defines the word eloquently. Shalom is a life as having every sufficiency and good fortune. Okay, every sufficiency. You got everything you need, every good fortune. And so filled with inner contentment, delight, and joy and pleasure as a gift from God. Okay, it's, it's life in its ultimate fruitfulness and joy and contentment. As the verse says, your days are long because they were, are packed with good things. And over a long life, all you know is the blessing of God. The promise in verse 4 is for favor, which I've already pointed out is related to the idea of grace. Favor and good success. That word good success, it, it, it's, it's really the success of, of being respected, having a good reputation before God and man. Think about Jesus. You know what it said about Jesus? Here he is. He is a 12-year-old boy. And this is how Luke describes him. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So we can watch his life to see what that favor looks like. So the goal of the text in this first section is to find grace, to find favor. You treasure in your heart and your mind the commands your Father teaches you. You don't let them leave you. Your reputation is one of a gracious person who lives to please God and serve those he encounters in the community. That's very broad. That's very general. So what does this life lived by your father's commands out of a heart of faithful love look like? And that's the next passage, which gives us three points of direction to prepare us for finding grace. It gives us a path to follow of wisdom. And as a result, we find grace. So number two, verses five through 10, practicing grace. The first practice requires trust in the Lord. Verses 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Trust with your entire inner being. Not trust like closing your eyes and gritting your teeth as you hope the plane is not going to crash in the thunderstorm landing. Trust like an inner confidence that even if there is a crash, the Lord has you and He will take care of you. The temptation is always to lean on our own understanding. All that we can see is all that we can see. We can't see what God sees. <laughs> and we can't see God. So in a difficult situation, the tendency 
is to take matters into our own hands. You see someone who has a great financial need. You realize that you could help them with the money you have. But then you take matters into your own hands and you say, if I give this money away and, and then lose my job, I'll be in poverty. So even though my brother is in need, I've got to hold on to my cash. Makes total sense, doesn't it? <laughs> no, we should lean not on our own understanding. We could give multitudes of examples of this, but I think the best one is the temptation before Adam and Eve in the garden. Eat the fruit God forbids so you can get knowledge for yourself apart from God. Well, if that's not your own understanding, I don't know what is. If you don't eat the fruit, you've got to trust Him for direction. And who knows when He'll be next around to give you the help you need. Sometimes He's silent in the, in the difficulties. and Sometimes the path is not clear. In all your ways, verse 5 says, acknowledge Him. Again, it's a translation, but literally you could translate this in all your ways, desire His presence. Desire His presence. Last week we learned that in the Bible, knowledge is personal. You're wanting God to be present with you and to guide you every step of the path in your life's journey. You acknowledge that you need His personal presence and insight so that you can find your way ahead. The best thing we can do in acknowledging Him in our ways, in seeking His personal involvement, is pray. Prayer is the direction you can take to fulfill the call to find grace and to practice those things that lead you to finding grace grace. There is a hint of darkness behind verses 5 and 6. If your days and years are filled with shalom, why should you need to trust? The assumption in these verses is that the path is not clear, that something is lacking, possibly hinting at disaster ahead. And you don't know what to do. Trust or faith is the condition of your heart in between your awareness of the problem and its solution. Trust is where you stand when you don't know how this problem is going to be resolved. This text and I have to stress this entire book, does not call us to rational control. Uh, I'm just going to follow the science. Heard that before? We hear that all the time. Science says, science says, no, I'm not going to depend on rational control, nor does it call us to a set of rules. Well, these rules, these commands have been around traditionally for a really long time, and so you just follow the directions and hope for the best. Put your trust in the rule. Now, we 
position ourselves for grace by looking to our personal God to direct us and provide for us and protect us. So that, that's different than a rational self-control. That's different than, well, just do this and hope for the best. This is my God will supply personally all my needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The next step on the path for finding grace is verses 7 and 8. Let's look at them again. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Being wise in your own eyes is akin to verse 5, leaning on your own understanding. But in this verse, you are contemplating moving in the direction of evil to get what you want. I know it's a lie, but if the truth gets out, I'll lose my job. Okay. Don't, don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Do what's right. Turn from evil. Being wise in your own eyes, according to Proverbs, is worse. If you can imagine this, being wise in your own eyes is worse than being a fool. Chapter 26, verse 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. You don't want to be that guy. The fear of the Lord keeps you from thinking this way. When you see your Father in heaven in control, perfect in His ways, holy in His wrath, able to provide and protect, those are all the things that feed into the fear of the Lord. When that is your driving motivation, you reject all sin and all human wisdom as a means of finding shalom. And you position yourself to receive grace. The promise of verse 8 is that whatever danger you fear, it will not last. You will be restored to health. It will be healing to your flesh, probably referring to your external body, and refreshment to your Bones, probably a reference to our internal state. So you turn away from evil. You're not wise in your own eyes. You trust in the Lord and you will be healthy and whole on the inside and the out. And then we come to a final way to position yourself for grace. And let's read verses 9 and 10 again. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. The word honor means to count someone of having great substance about himself. He is weighty. He is significant in his knowledge and authority. To position yourself for grace, you show the Lord that you think 
that he is more significant to you than anyone or anything. You count him as significant. You honor him in this way. You can do this by giving him your money. We're not, at least the vast majority of us are not farmers here. But in ancient times, that was where your wealth came from. So your first fruits are the first part of the harvest before the potential thunderstorm will destroy the rest. For us, it's the first of our income. First fruits are not only the first, but it's the best. Abel gave the first and the best of the sheep he had, and the Lord accepted his offering. Cain gave a token. We'll give you what's left over. Of course, we can't give our gifts to heaven, so we give to support what the Lord values on the earth, his church, his church's mission, the poor and the needy. The promise of verse 10 is that God will see to it personally that you have more than enough. So your barns are just jammed with food. And then your vats are overflowing. In ancient winemaking, you put all your grapes in this bathtub-sized container that had a drain on the bottom. And then you or a few of you would get in the tank and stomp the grapes with your feet. The juice would drain down into another tank. And there was usually more than enough room for all that juice to flow into that tank. But in this promise, your grape harvest would be so large, your grapes so juicy, that the tank below could not contain the liquid that flowed into it. Your vats are overflowing. So we position ourselves to find grace through trust and humility and giving honor. But then we come to the third section, which shows us that we don't always get it right. Or what we see is that grace corrects us. So part three, correcting grace, verses 11 and 12. God's gift of grace not only gives us the wisdom to know how to act in a particular situation, God, as a gift to us, corrects us when we're wrong. So read verse 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Discipline is a word related to education. It's not at all related to punishment. It's related to training. It means correcting someone so they can try again and get it right next time. In Proverbs, it usually involves a verbal rebuke, but it can also mean pointing out or even creating painful consequences for a foolish act. For a young child, it could involve a spanking. Notice that the father does not call it his discipline. 
Behind the wise father stands the Lord himself. Though we cannot see his hand, we can receive his discipline. We can receive hardship in our life as discipline from our Father in heaven. Sometimes in our foolishness, we create circumstances that repay our folly with hardship. Sometimes the Lord himself rebukes us in his word. Or he rebukes us through our earthly father. And sometimes he disciplines us even through those who would hate us and oppose us. Every hardship in life can be a part of the training of your Father in heaven so that you can find his grace. When you are still a beginner in learning wisdom, it seems that all you hear is correction. You start to think, I can't do anything right. And so you come to despise the correction. The word weary has the sense of revulsion. You are sick and tired of being corrected. The temptation is to find someone who tells you that everything you do is just wonderful and whenever your failure is obvious to all, they tell you that there is someone else to blame. What you must realize, what will require trusting the Lord with all your heart, is that this Father's correction is motivated by love. And in fact, it proves you have a Father in heaven. If you are not corrected, but ignored, it is a sign of God's rejection of you. His correction is a gift. It's an act of grace, and that's why I've called it correcting grace. I say this to my shame, but when I was 14 years old, I consciously told the Lord that I was checking out on him. I wanted to have fun. I really did this. I'm not this is not an exaggeration. I wanted to have fun, I told him, and I didn't want to feel guilty about it. What followed were three years of fun-filled misery. And that's not an exaggeration either. I got my fun, but my Father in heaven, he continued to correct me. Finally, I submitted to his discipline, and by his grace, he forgave me and continued me in his training program. And I am, 50 years later, receiving his love and discipline even to this day. That's how I know he loves me. He corrects me with his word. He makes my life hard at points so that I can learn what it means to trust him and follow him and walk in wisdom. Listen, I want to I want to speak because I, I have such a, a a sense of compassion for young men, teenage men, because I remember myself in this situation. Um, 
don't be weary of your father's correction. Don't be sick of it. It may seem like that's all you get from it. That's probably not true, but it can feel that way. But you need to see, even if your father is not wise at points, you need to see that the Lord is the one who is disciplining you. And if you will embrace that at this time in your life, you will prepare yourself for a wonderful education that is directed and implemented by God himself. Don't despise the Lord's discipline. Don't be a fool like I was. So our passage calls us to find favor, to find God's grace. We find it by trusting what God says over our own ideas and our own circumstances. We find it by turning from evil alternatives that may seem easier than pursuing what God commands. We find it by submitting to God's discipline. And that's the text. But there are two major questions that this text forces you to ask. And I want to deal with them because if we don't deal with them as we go through this book, we can end up misunderstanding the book of Proverbs significantly. So I'm, I'm going to ask you to hang with me here so that we can confront these things. The first question is, do these promises in verses 1 through 12 map on to reality? Have people not trusted the Lord and only remained in confusion with no good path open before them? Are there not people who give their money generously and then face financial ruin that's not of their own doing? Are there not people who turn from evil but still get sick in body and soul? The question is, does Proverbs promise too much. Now, I know most of you have been trained in the Scriptures, and you say, oh, that's why we have the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes. But the book of Proverbs has got to stand on its own, or else we will dismiss one or the other. I've been greatly helped in facing this question by the man who first taught me this book, and I had the privilege of sitting in a classroom learning from him in that man's name. He's since died. His name was Bruce Waltke. He would say that one popular solution some teachers offer is that Proverbs is giving us probabilities. The odds are, if you trust the Lord, your path is going to turn out all right. And this is terrible. <laughs> This is no better than trusting science and its probabilities. I mean, how many times have you sat with the doctor and he says, well, you know, 70% of the people who go through this procedure, I have no problem. Uh, okay, I'll trust the probabilities. Do you really want a God who keeps his promises 85% of the time? 99% of the time? Even worse than that, do you want a God who commands you to obey Him completely, trust in the Lord with all your heart, but He only rewards my obedience sometimes? 
most of the time, but sometimes not. Here's my summary of how Walke answers the question, does Proverbs promise too much? First, this is a book for young men, and you can point out to them that you can actually see these promises play out in people's lives. The promises and warnings of Proverbs do play out in real time. The diligent, not the sluggard, prospers. You can point that out. It's true. The those who restrain their temper, not the hothead, avoid destructive disputes. So this stuff does play out. It's for real. Second, there are proverbs that tell us in the moment that the situation does not play out according to what the proverbs of our text today tell us. Sometimes the wicked do prosper, at least for the time being. You can see that in chapter 10, verse 2. That's the assumption behind that verse. Sometimes all you get is only a little with your righteous life. That's the idea behind chapter 16, verse 8. Chapter 19, uh, 19 verse 1 says, It's better to be poor and walk in integrity than to be crooked in speech and a fool. Sometimes wisdom leads you to accepting poverty where you could have had wealth through being a fool. So the book of Proverbs itself recognizes that we often live in the gap between the promise and its fulfillment. Furthermore, as verses 10 and 11 would make clear, God arranges our lives so that we must trust Him. If God immediately rewarded us for our faithfulness in every situation, there'd be no need for trust. Think about that. You know, oh Lord, I got a problem. Bang, it's solved. Oh Lord, what do you want me to do? You do it. Bang, everything gets better. No, if that were the case, we would not need to trust him. So through putting us in difficult situations, he makes us wiser and more fruitful by having to trust him in the time between the promise and its fulfillment. Trusting causes us to trust him and to rely on his grace. So that's second. Third, Proverbs recognizes that the righteous do fall down in this life. Chapter 24, verse 16 says that the righteous fall down seven times. But then it says, they always get back up. <laughs> the wicked, on the other hand, as the proverb says, eventually fall into calamity, never to rise again. So you've got to look at a, at a whole life. You can't look at Proverbs and all their promises in a single day or a single year or, or even 20 years. Sometimes you've got to wait to see the end of a life. And then finally, fourth, Proverbs keeps the ultimate end in view. It hints at a life 
beyond this life. One day we will see all the wisdom of God made perfect, but that day is beyond our lifetime. Injustice may seem to rule today, but it will not last on the day of the Lord's great judgment of all people. So to answer the question, does Proverbs not promise too much? I'm sorry, Proverbs does not promise too much. It does not. But it does teach us how to live a wise life, a life that leads to favor with God and with man. You will find grace even in the midst of the difficulty. Now, there's another question. I just want to bring it up. It's equally difficult. I'm just going to mention it briefly. Can anyone meet the conditions of the Proverbs? Who trusts the Lord with all his heart? Who hasn't held back money when he should have given it away? Who hasn't among us leaned on his own understanding? If the promises of Proverbs are contingent on my perfect practice of the commands, I can just forget about it. Well, already we've seen that this book itself is built on grace. Wisdom is a gift given to the undeserving. We are invited to participate in this grace through our faith, our giving, our humility, our acceptance of discipline. The gift and our participation in the gift are all by grace. So it's, it's not like we're striving to get everything together perfectly so we can earn these things. But there's something deeper here, and it's revealed in Jesus Christ. This is what Colossians 2 says. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I can find wisdom in Christ. I can look at his life on earth and see that it ended horribly, completely unjustly, with the wicked seeming to win the day, and then he rose from the dead. So I had to see the whole thing. But then after he ascended to heaven, the wicked continued to prosper in their ways. And they continued to persecute Jesus' people. But I can look beyond the days of this life and see that Jesus has prepared the full and final promises of God for me in heaven. Jesus is the epitome of grace. We see him teach the disciples who needed a ton of corrective discipline. But he stayed with them. And when their lack of wisdom caused them to fail, he always made up what is lacking. So if you're joined to Jesus in his life and his death and his resurrection, you can count on him to treat you graciously as his disciple. And we can count on him to make up for our foolishness. The promises of Proverbs hold for us because we are united with Christ. We are joined to Jesus. And our Father in heaven relates to us through Him, His wisdom, His obedience, His sacrifice for our sins. He relates to us as a Father who loves and disciplines His sons. This is why we need to take the Lord's Supper every week. A 
apart from Jesus' grace to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and I might add, to overcome all our folly and the messes we can make in this life, apart from Jesus and what he's done for us, this would be completely overwhelming. We would either reduce Proverbs to external rules that we can easily keep and be proud of ourselves, or we can look at our lives honestly and be full of guilt and discouragement. Jesus' death allows us to see how badly we failed to keep God's will and how completely Jesus has paid for our sins and provided for us even in our failure. Where do we go to find grace? Well, first, we go to Jesus. Then we find the love of a Father in heaven who is more than willing through his grace to teach us wisdom so that even in this life, we can find favor with God and man. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that these 12 verses would be written on the tablet of our hearts and as a result, we'd live a life where the beauty of your wisdom would be evident to all. Very briefly, Lord, we just pray that you'd make us like the one we're joined to, your son, Jesus. Shape us in his image. Teach us how to face difficulty and disaster by looking to him and looking at him as he revealed how to live in this world as a human being. Teach us, Lord, and lead us. Teach us that we might find your grace. We ask in Jesus' name.